Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You can just put it in the basket, yeah. Good morning. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Sean, and I'm one of the pastors on our team, and I'm looking forward to spending some time together this morning for our last Sunday in Eastertide. Next week, we are going to be celebrating Pentecost Sunday, uh, but five Sundays ago, on the second Sunday of Easter, we began a journey through the book of Acts. Today is the seventh Sunday of Easter, and we've made it all the way to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I don't know how that happened. I think this might be the plot to a Christopher Nolan movie, but I'm not entirely sure. Tenet, that's a tenant joke. Yeah, okay. So the question is why? Why did we go all the way through the book of Acts only to arrive back at chapter one? Well, today is also called Ascension Sunday in the church calendar. Depending upon the tradition that you found yourself in before you came to Antioch, uh, my hunch is that it's not a day that you have a ton of experience with. In spite of us not having a lot of experience with it, we tend to know uh, that the ascension is an important part of the Christian faith because it's in the creeds. Uh, the Apostles' Creed says this about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Taking a shorter section from the Nicene Creed, it goes like this. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So if it makes it into these two Mount Rushmore creeds, then it is generally a big deal. 
But if someone were to ask you to explain the ascension or to detail the ramifications of the ascension, my next hunch, because I'm right there with you, is that you might not know what to say. Like, oh yeah, that's important but I don't know why, and that's okay. Uh, one commentary I read about this day said that no other festival in the Christian year is more important and yet less emphasized than the ascension of the Lord. So here's the thing, maybe you feel this way, but if I was in charge, uh, the ascension seems like a really bad idea. I try not to tell God too much about uh, good ideas, bad ideas, but the ascension doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus has essentially, he's just won the Super Bowl, and he just hit a walk-off home run in the World Series, whatever metaphor you want to use. He is riding high, right? He's at the top of his game. He's just called his own shot. He has defeated death. And now he just disappears in the cloud? Like, that's bad business plan. That's a bad marketing. It's, it's not a good idea. It doesn't make any sense. He should have stuck around. He should have, you know, grew this thing up. He should have been more hands-on. doesn't make sense for him to just peace out after the death and resurrection. So we're going to talk about all that, and we're going to see if we can arrive at some answers. So let's get a few basics out of the way, as Natalie expertly read for us. Natalie, by the way, amazing, amazing job. Yes. The uh, ascension comes 40 days after the resurrection. So the day of ascension is marked 40 days after we celebrate Easter. So if you are good at math, 40 days after Easter Sunday, that means the ascension always follows, comes on a Thursday. And so then we mark it a few days later on Ascension Sunday. Pentecost Sunday comes 10 days after the ascension. So 10 days after Thursday is seven days from Sunday. Pentecost is next week. That's all confusing in a lot of numbers. But what that means in terms of our timeline in the text is that Jesus died Three days later, he rose again, and then he spent 40 days with the disciples after he was resurrected. After those 40 days, the disciples had 10 days where Jesus had left their midst before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So this text today, it looks backward to their time with Jesus. It looks ahead towards what they are to do next, and what we see at the end, the text actually looks up. But what I think makes this text especially interesting is that this text has so much to say about living in the in-between times and moments. Again, it's this 10-day window. Jesus has gone. The Holy Spirit isn't here. What do we do between that? What do you do when you inhabit a liminal space? Because it's exactly where the disciples find themselves in the text with their teacher leaving and not knowing when the comforter that he has promised would arrive. So let's dive in. Verse 1 says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. So Luke makes it clear from the beginning that his work here in this book is the second in a two-part series. So like the Gospel of Luke, here in Acts, he says that he is writing to Theophilus, uh, which could mean one of two things. Uh, first, uh, a guy named Theophilus, who very well could have been a historical person. Luke might have been writing to him. He might have financed the project. But uh, here's the thing. You guys actually are all Greek scholars. I know that you are better at Greek than you believe yourselves to be, uh, because I think that you can break down what Theophilus as a name means. 
So Theo, we know that is God, right? And then Philophilus, whatever, however you say that, like Philadelphia, right, means love. So Theophilus is one who loves God. So this may be a person's actual name, but it also feels a little bit too on the nose, right? It's like we have this family friend from San Antonio, his name is Tex Farmer, uh, that, that you're like, if I didn't know that person, that would not be real. That does not sound like a real name, right? Theophilus is kind of the same thing. Lover of God, that doesn't sound like a real name. So what I think might be happening here in the text is that as Luke establishes the Jesus tradition, he may not be writing to a specific person, but he is writing to all who considered themselves to be friends and lovers of God, just like you and me. So verse three, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing, convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So again, we're still looking back in our timeline, and Luke is saying that after the resurrection, Jesus had 40 days with the disciples. In these 40 days, he uh, proved to the disciples that he was truly alive. He wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't just a vision. He wasn't AI Jesus, and he continued to teach them about the kingdom of God. 40 days is a significant number in scripture, and just like Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness helped prepare him for his public ministry, these 40 days prepare the disciples and their community for the next step of the journey. So in verse four, we hear Jesus give them this command. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I'm fairly certain the disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. So the disciples do next because they are confused and uh, they do something that people from the very beginning of time and still continue to do to this day. Uh, they try and predict what God will do next. They think they can predict what God will do next. It's a, because the question that they ask here next coming up in verse six is predicting about what God is actually going to do, what he is really up to. And the question they ask them is actually a loaded question. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? On the surface, it seems like a fairly innocent question, uh, but it's not. The disciples' expectations for what it means to restore the kingdom to Israel, it was uh, found in their belief of a King David-type rule that they wanted to return to that Jesus would be the political and military king of Israel, that he would rule from Jerusalem, that he would restore God's people. Israel would be the top nation. The whole world would be turned around at last with Israel as its rightful ruler and Jesus on the throne in the temple. And since they had been at Jesus' side, they, of course, would get the top jobs in the government. But this question exposes how much the disciples have left to learn. It shows their short-sightedness. It shows that they're not seeing the big picture. And so one thing that I take away from this is if you ever feel bad for not understanding God or God's plan or anything like that, let the disciples be a reminder they were even worse, okay? They had followed Jesus around for three years. They had got 40 days of teaching with the literal resurrected Christ, and they still cannot put it all together. So just go easy on yourself, okay? So Jesus responds to their question in verse seven. 
He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, which uh, just as a side note, this is a line that I am filing away for when Penny is a teenager. Uh, you know, when is, di- when is dinner? Well, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, okay? I think she'll think it's funny, maybe? No, maybe not, okay. So continue, verse eight says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the answer that Jesus gives them actually responds to their true question about what are you really up to, God? What is coming up next? And what he tells them is that their vision of the kingdom is too small. He says, you are not ready for, nor do you need to know all of the details of how God is operating here. What you need to do is get yourselves ready for the coming of the Spirit. That will be the next leg of your journey on the way. That is enough for now. That is all you can handle. That is all you need to do. Don't know about you, but I am a planner. I like to make spreadsheets. I like to use calendars. I like to know all of the things that are coming up. And I know it sounds stressful to some people. Even on vacation, I like to have a plan. I want to make reservations months in advance. I want to know what I'm doing on day two versus day five, get all the good restaurants, right? I love it. Or if I'm starting a project, I'm laying out every step of the way. You can ask my coworkers. It's obnoxious. But uh, maybe the disciples weren't quite as meticulous as I am, but I think they were hoping that Jesus would give them maybe a little bit more info about the plan. Some real concrete stuff about what the next phase of this journey would look like as they look ahead. But again, as we see in the text, that's not what Jesus does at all. I'm sure it was super frustrating to the disciples because things are not going to the way that they expected them. Their first surprise was Jesus dying. That was not something they expected. Came back. That was a good surprise. And now what he is doing is not what their expectations were for when Israel would be restored. So instead of all of these expectations, he tells them, I want you to be my witnesses. Now, in the first century, uh, when someone was enthroned as king, they would send heralds to serve as witnesses throughout the empire to inform the people of the good news of a new king. So Jesus is telling them, you are to do the same thing, and he offers them a loose outline of the plan. He says, first, I want you to stay in this big city, Jerusalem, that you are visiting, but you don't really like that much. And I want you to stay here until God makes his presence known. Trust me, you'll know it when you see it, right? Just stay in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. You'll be fine. You'll know it when you see it. Don't worry about times or dates or anything. You got this. So that's step one. Might have been a little grumbling from the disciples, a little confusion, but you know, we've been here for a little bit. We can make that work. Step two, Jesus tells them, he says, once that happens, you know what, you can leave the city. Once you get back out into the countryside of Judea where you like it better and you can be my witnesses there. Disciples are probably like, great, we can do that easy. But Jesus says, once you go there, step three is I actually need you to go to the people you hate and who hate you uh, in Samaria. And the disciples are like, excuse me, what? Samaria? We don't go to Samaria. They, we hate Samarit- Samaritans. They hate us. And so Jesus is like, yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be great. You'll be fine. You know what? Actually, after you spend some time with the people that want to kill you, you'll actually need to go spend some time with a bunch of people you don't know, have never met, probably very different from you, and might also want to kill you. You know, just go to the ends of the earth, the complete and total ends of the earth. Okay? Great. 
And before they can ask any follow-up questions, the text gives us this jarringly terse statement. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. What? Okay, we don't give the Bible enough credit for being objectively hilarious. <laughs> you kidding me? If I, if I was a disciple, I can't decide if I've been upset, confused, not even mad, but impressed. I'm sure they were like, you know, that is not enough info. We need more training. We need to know where this whole thing is going. This is like, a, you know, a technical challenge on the Great British Bake Off with two lines of instructions, right? We don't know how to do this. But what we see is that Jesus has something else planned for them. While the disciples may be frustrated to not know the whole plan, they are empowered with a purpose to follow the mission that he set out for them. They may not feel ready, but Jesus believes that they are ready. Even though their lack of maturity is still on display with their expectations, with the questions they ask, Jesus has confidence that they can and will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells them that all, of, all the authority rests in God the Father, but that each of the disciples will be given power from that authority through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word for power is dunamis, and that's how we get the word dynamite. And that's why Jesus is confident that they got this. They may not be able to do this on their own, but with the explosive power of the Holy Spirit that will come in just a few days' time at Pentecost, they can do it. Because without it, uh, they probably won't make it out of Jerusalem or even Judea. But Jesus has told them they are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what this means is they have been called to go out as heralds. There is a new king, but not of someone who will become king at some point in the future, but the one who has already been appointed and, appointed and enthroned. One who has the ultimate authority and will use that authority to grant the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we've already seen in several of our stops through the book of Acts, they will accomplish this task. They will go to Samaria. They will go to Caesarea. They will go to Damascus. They will go to Antioch. Ever heard of it? They'll go to Asia Minor, Europe, Rome. And Paul was even on his way to Spain, which was pretty much the ends of the earth in their context. So as witnesses, they have been empowered with a purpose to live out this great mission of Jesus. This is what they can look forward to. But after that moment when Jesus ascends, we find the disciples in a predictable posture, looking up. Verse 10 says, they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been, who has take, been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We don't know how long they are staring up at the cloud, but the appearance of two angels, it snaps their scene back to reality. So why, why did they show up? Perhaps the two angels uh, were present to comfort them. They've just experienced this huge transition that happened in the blink of an eye. Their teacher, their traveling companion, the resurrected Lord would no longer be present in the flesh on earth with them. The most consistent thing in their lives for the past few years has just exited stage left. That could be one reason why the angels come. 
But I think there's a better one too because the two angels do not merely console them. They don't even really offer any empathy to the disciples with their necks craned upwards. Instead, the angels point the disciples back to the mission in which Jesus has empowered them. Rather than looking up for all of the answers or expecting Jesus to solve their problems, the angels tell them they need to be looking out at their surroundings and to the ends of the earth as they fulfill their calling to be witnesses to God's kingdom. It's the same for us. I know for me, it can be easy to stare off and metaphorically up waiting for the next step or for the next direction or for God to show up. Instead, what we see here is that we are not always to be gazing upward toward heaven because if we do that, we miss the world around us. We can become indifferent to the injustices in our community. We can become unaware of the needs of our neighbors. We can be so busy with ourselves and our own relationship with Jesus that we ignore the lives of those around us. We become ignorant, as liberation theologian Leonardo Boff calls it, to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. If you're only looking up, it's hard to see those around you who are hurting, of those that we've been called to be a witness to. I think part of that is because we don't fully understand the ascension. And this whole scene with Jesus, particularly when he responds to their questions about restoring the kingdom to Israel, it's easy to imagine Jesus saying something like this. No, 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 you guys are dreaming of an earthly kingdom, but I'm telling you about a heavenly one. You think what matters is reorganizing this world, but I'm preparing you for the next one. What counts is not what happens in this world of space and time, but where you're going to spend eternity. I'm going off to heaven, and you must tell people how they can follow me there. Maybe you've been taught some version of this idea. Doesn't sound so bad. Actually, it sounds pretty good. But I don't think this is what the text is saying. What the unified message of Jesus is through this composite volume of Luke and Acts is this, that God's kingdom is coming in and through the work of Jesus, not by taking people away from this world, but by transforming the things of this world, bringing the sphere of earth into the presence and under the rule of heaven itself. There is both a future reality and a present reality to this vision. So rather than seeing heaven as a separate place from earth, it's that place up there where we're trying to get to when we die, scripture views heaven and earth as two halves of God's created world. So N.T. Wright puts it like this, he says, heaven in the Bible is God's space and earth is ours. Heaven isn't just the happy place where God's people go when they die, and it certainly isn't our home, if by that you mean our eventual destiny is to leave earth altogether and go to heaven instead. God's plan, as we see again and again in the Bible, is for new heavens and new earth and for them to be joined together in that renewal once and for all. Heaven may be our temporary home after this present life, but the whole new world united and transformed is our eventual destination. In the ascension of Jesus, we see the uniting of these two halves. We see Jesus fully God, Jesus fully human, bringing together these two realities giving us a glimpse of the future to come. So when it comes to the ascension, we see the ascension, it's not about Jesus returning home. It's not that he's, you know, came to earth, it's been a long, tough visit, now he gets to go back home and rest. Jesus being fully human makes his home on earth and being fully divine makes his home in the realm of heaven. The second thing about the ascension is this, it is not Jesus going away. He has promised his return. He has promised his continual presence through the Spirit. 
What the ascension is, is a visualization of Jesus taking his throne as prophesied through the book Daniel. It is Jesus empowering the church. It is Jesus empowering you and me with the Holy Spirit. So yes, the ascension marks the end of Jesus' earthly experience, but it also marks the beginning of the role of Jesus as advocate and intercessor at God's side for all of us. It is a foretaste of the full unification of heaven and earth. Now there is a podcast I like to listen to, maybe some of you do too, it's called How I Built This. Uh, it's, uh, it's hosted by Guy, Guy Raz, it's part of NPR, but it interviews different entrepreneurs about companies that they've started that have become influential. It's fascinating to hear all these different stories of how people have arrived at some measure of success. And I started to think about what would happen if Jesus went on that show, of how he would sound completely different than just about anyone else. Uh, so Jesus, I understand that you died and rose from the dead. What did you do next? I left in a cloud. Because the ascension in the way of Jesus, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. But part of what it illustrates is that Jesus is turning everything over to us. He could have stayed. He could have been, again, a super hands-on boss. He could have made sure we did everything right, everything the way that he would have done it. But Jesus wants us to be his hands and feet. He wanted to conscript those early disciples and you and me to grow and build his kingdom. Again, it certainly didn't make any business sense. It seemed like a wild idea. But I think Jesus knew that if he was physically around all the time, we would never truly take up the mission for ourselves. So what does all of this mean for us today? Just like the original disciples, we have been called to live as God's witnesses, to live our lives in such a way that we testify to the loving, kind, compassionate, and merciful triune God. These early disciples took Jesus' words in John 13 very seriously. It says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Just like the disciples, we are called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, it might look different for us, but what are the places or the ideas that you could swap in for those? Are we called to be witnesses in Bend, in Central Oregon? And what's the place we don't like? Idaho? Um, to the ends of the earth. My hunch is that Jesus meant this as metaphorically as he did literally. And so what this means is we are to be witnesses in the places we feel comfortable. Maybe that's with our family or with our friends. But we're also to be witnesses in the places where we might not feel as comfortable. In our neighborhood, at school, at our workplace. Could it even be with those that we disagree with, those who are our enemies, those who live differently than us, parent differently than us, vote differently than us. Doesn't mean that we have to be weird about it. If you missed Pete's sermon last week on evangelism, you should definitely go back and listen. But what it does mean is that Jesus expects us to represent him and his kingdom of love well in every situation and area of our lives. We are to be living examples of this upside down kingdom of love and justice and hospitality and compassion. And we have a lot of work to do. As Christians, this isn't the narrative for us these days. 
Jesus says, everyone will know that you are my disciples by your love, and we haven't been great at that, but we can change it. Because just like the disciples, we are living in this in-between time. We don't have all of the info. We're not sure of the entire plan. And if we're honest, when we look around, sometimes it feels like the plan isn't working at all. We look around and we see hatred. Uh, we see anger. We see people hurting. We see people hungry. We see injustice. We see a planet on fire. What are we to do? But just as Jesus put his confidence in the disciples, he puts his confidence in us. And because of that, we can be confident that God has empowered us with his spirit towards the vision of the reconciliation of all things. And, and this is vitally important. We will only be able to be true witnesses to Jesus and his love if we are tethered to the Holy Spirit. If you remember from Jesus' instructions, the, the disciples, they will receive the Holy Spirit and only after that will they truly be able to go out into the world as witnesses of this improbable kingdom. Maybe they wanted to start right away, but Jesus said, no, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you. And this is a reminder that I need every day. Maybe you do too. Of It's only when we are walking in step with the Spirit and leaning into the Spirit as our source and as our guide can we truly live out the way of Jesus and live as hope for the world. So we begin to see that the ascension is less of a theological concept, but an opportunity for us to partner with Jesus. Because here's the thing, we have been given all that we need, the power of the Holy Spirit and the mission of living as God's witnesses in the world. And while I personally want to know more and all the ins and outs, Jesus is confident that that is enough. He has chosen us to be ambassadors of his kingdom, to practice resurrection by working together to bring healing, hope, and restoration to the world that so desperately needs it. Julia and I were watching a show last night, and one of the characters said this. They said, hope is a dangerous thing. It tricks your mind into seeing things in this world that will never come true. I think this character was close to right. Hope is a dangerous thing. But as Christians, we are confident that the hope that we have in Jesus can and will change this world. So rather than getting caught looking up, waiting for God to show up, we are in challenge to look out and to see God in the world around us and to be active participants in that hope as we take action only with the aid of God's Spirit. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who live as God's witnesses in the world, empowered by his Holy Spirit, as we join him in the reconciliation of all things. Amen.